if you would please, and turn me to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is where I'd like to direct your attention, chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, some of your Bibles will creak a little bit. We're not in Acts yet, uh, but Philippians 4 is where I'd like to begin this morning. This is the week of Thanksgiving. And, and for us, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, Thanksgiving should be very easy. Um, we read the Bible, we know Jesus, we know that in him are found all of the riches, the treasure of life, and all of the riches that we will experience in the life to come. Thanksgiving should be very easy, it should be very natural. In fact, it should be the overwhelming demeanor of your life. You're grateful, you're grateful, except it's not, is it? In fact, this, uh, some of you this year will struggle, this time of year, in fact, you struggle. You spend more time anxious over how much of an ingrate you are than actually being thankful. Um, Philippians 4 has for us in a paragraph Paul's diagnosis of one of the things that squeezes out, that suffocates thanksgiving. One of gratitude's greatest threats here. I want to read it in a very familiar paragraph from verses 4 through 9. I'm sure you'll recognize it as we read. So Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul writes. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So did you see it in these verses? What is the threat here to gratitude? It's very easy to see. I think it's verse 6. Anxiety. Do not be anxious. Worrying people are not grateful people. Listen to what Brandon O'Brien wrote. He's a, a pastor. He says, I hail from a long line of worriers. From my dad, I inherited an inability to sleep until I resolve whatever issue is currently on my mind. From my mom, I received a proclivity for stomach aches before exams. It's not all bad, I suppose. Worry has historically been a powerful motivator for me. One Saturday night, I went to sleep unprepared for the sermon I was set to deliver the next morning. I had a nightmare. I dreamed all of my biblical studies professors, previous pastors, and mentors arrived at church to hear me preach, only to discover that I was shooting from the hip. I woke up in a cold sweat and worked on my sermon till morning. I'd like to think that my tendency to worry is evidence of my unwavering sense of responsibility. Truth is, worry reveals a deep-seated self-reliance. Self-reliant people are not grateful people either. Think of Proverbs 12:25. Anxiety in the heart, it weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Worry is like a weight. Anxiety is, is, is blinding. This past summer, we were in downtown Philadelphia for a day, and we saw the horse-drawn carriages. 
and we walked by them, all of those horses have blinders on. They're there because in city traffic, unexpected and surprising things can happen. And the blinders are there to keep the horses from being startled by something. And anxiety is a blinding thing too. It keeps you focused on troubles and problems and threats and challenges and you can't see anything else. I have on my bookshelf a, a wonderful little volume. It's uh, edited by Michael, Michael Haken. It's, it contains letters that famous Christians have written to their spouses or fiancés over the years. And uh, listen to this letter from Martin Luther that he wrote to his wife. Uh, it's, listen to how he, he, he chides her playfully a little bit for her worrying ways. This is what he wrote. Uh, it starts very biblically. Martin Luther to the holy lady full of worries. Mrs. Katerina, doctor, the lady of Zolsdorf at Wittenberg, my gracious dear mistress of the house. That's how you begin your letters to your sweetheart, isn't it? Well, listen to what he says. Grace and peace in Christ, most holy doctor. My most holy Mrs. Doctor, he called her. I thank you very kindly for your great worry, which robs you of sleep. Since the date that you started to worry about me, the fire in my quarters right outside the room tried to devour me. And yesterday, no doubt because of the strength of your worries, a stone almost fell on my head and nearly squashed me as in a mouse trap. The stone was as big as a long pillow and is as wide as a large hand. It intended to repay you for your holy worries had the dear angels not protected me. Now I worry that if you do not stop worrying, the earth will finally swallow us up and all the elements will chase us. Is this the way you learned the catechism and the faith? Pray and let God worry. You have certainly not been commanded to worry about me or yourself. And he signs it, Your Holiness's willing servant, Martin Luther. Now, how did the Apostle Paul learn to deal with his anxiety? I have, I have a suspicion that the answer to that question uh, comes from experiences that he had just a few months before he wrote this letter to the Philippians while he was still a prisoner in the city of Caesarea. That's where we left Paul the last time we were in the book of Acts. We've been in Caesarea with Paul for several weeks. In fact, the last 25% of the book of Acts is Paul in prison, first in Jerusalem and then in Caesarea. They're helpful chapters. They're helpful chapters as we think about the mission that is before us that Jesus gave us. Remember what he said before he ascended to heaven. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Three billion people yet to hear. Some of the places that actually we're thinking about when we think about the ends of the earth are places that have already been reached before. This morning, Christina McLaughlin flew to Germany. Three to four percent of people in Germany claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ as evangelical believers. Ninety-two percent of Germans have no church affiliation of any kind. Christina's going. And when Paul is arrested in Acts chapter 21, we begin to follow his faith and we learn about following Jesus or follow his journey there. We begin to learn about following Jesus in a contrary world, a hostile world. There's no in these chapters, there are no amazing miracles. Nobody rises from the dead in these chapters. There's no stories here of mass conversion. This had been Paul's experience planting churches and seeing people become followers of Jesus. One wonders 
how discouraged he might have been at all this time he was sitting in prison. You would be discouraged. I would be discouraged. Or angry or bitter. This would make me want to quit on the mission that God had given. These are, these are skills, though, that we learn as Paul perseveres in the skills that we need to learn in, in this world, that in our culture, where we see the collapse of cultural Christianity and the hostile winds blow a little harder. Uh, John Stott, before he died, was interested in, in getting some evangelicals, pastors, and theologians from the third world. He wanted their writing to be more influential in the Western world. So he started a book series. It's called Christianity and Global Perspective. And one of the authors of one of those books is a man by the name of Samuel Escobar. He's a Latin American. And Samuel Escobar wrote a book about missions. And in the book on missions, he talked about how missions has changed over the centuries. At the beginning of the New Testament and right after the New Testament era, the message about Jesus spread from the bottom up. It spread from the lowest in society, not people with military might or they didn't have elite educational institutions or vast wealth. It spread through slaves and tradesmen and exiles, marginalized people. No professionals. Then when Christianity became legal in Rome uh, and then the official state religion, there formed this unhealthy marriage between church and state. And Christianity spread then uh, because uh, at the end of a spear or at the end of a gun, uh, that mix is toxic for both the state and the church. It was spread by conquering armies, spread by colonizers, very, very top down. What's interesting, in the last 50 years, though, uh, the, the center of the, the church in the world has moved south into Africa and Asia and Latin America. There are more Christians in Africa than in North America and in Europe. It's growing there immensely, and missions is becoming bottom-up again. In fact, uh, he, he tells a story, Escobar does, about uh, what's happening in the Middle East in some families. Very quietly, you'd never hear anything about this. But uh, it's happening through the influence of Filipino maids, rich Middle Eastern Arabs, uh, in order to uh, uh, care for their children and care for their homes, are hiring cheap labor from the Philippines. So they import into the Middle East Filipino maids and nannies, many of whom are followers of Jesus. And every day, these Filipino maids and nannies talk to the children in their care about Jesus. Ministry from the bottom up. These, are, these seven chapters that we're reading in the book of Acts are about ministry from the bottom up. Repeated themes come over and over again. And, and Paul perseveres in this. Um, what we want to do this morning is I would like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 25. Turn with me back over to Acts chapter 25. And we're going to follow Paul on one of his other trials. In fact, it's his fourth trial that he's been through we have one more to go lord willing we're going to go through that fifth trial next week and then we'll have a long sea voyage we're going to go sailing with paul across the mediterranean and then we're going to spend a week with paul in rome so uh, my plan is that including today we'll have four more weeks in the book of of acts and here we are at the fourth fourth trial and I think what we're going to see here is that Paul learned something or sees something. Paul has an experience in Acts 25 that teaches him about anxiousness, thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving is the subject of the week here. So one of the great threats to Thanksgiving is anxiety. How did Paul, how do you push back against anxiety? And here's the answer that Acts 25 supplies. It's a major theme, I think, of these uh, 12 verses that we're going to look at here. You can be certain. How do we push back against anxiety? You can be certain, whether it looks like it or not, you can be certain that God is at work. That's what we're going to learn from these verses. You can be certain, whether you, it looks like it or not, you can be certain that God is at work. Now, let's look at this trial here. We're going to read the verses. We'll see some themes again. And uh, l- l- let's look here. Acts 25, we'll start in verses 1 and 2. Three days after arriving in the province, uh, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and pretend- presented the charges against Paul. Now, here's the story of the new governor. Remember, Paul has been in prison for two years. Felix, the previous governor, had left him there. And now here, Festus has come. We don't know anything about Festus, really, historically. Uh, Although Luke seems to indicate that he's very efficient. He arrives in Caesarea. Three days later, he goes to Jerusalem. Uh, Caesarea is the political capital. Jerusalem, though, is the cultural and religious capital. If you want to rule in Judea as the governor, you've got to know what's going on in Jerusalem. So he goes to Jerusalem. And immediately the Jewish leaders bring up the Apostle Paul. Look here at their plan, verse 3. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Verse 5. Verse 4, actually. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. Paul has unrelenting enemies. Remember, he's been in prison for two years, and, and they're still plotting to try to execute him. These men... These religious leaders who are in charge of of upholding, teaching God's law are willing to do just about anything in breaking it in order to get rid of the Apostle Paul. This actually is one of the places, one of the elements in these trials where Luke, it seems, is trying to draw a comparison between Acts and Luke, what had happened to the Lord Jesus and what is happening to the Apostle Paul. Both of them on trial, both of them opposed by the Jewish leaders, maybe some of them the same men. It's about 30 years between, between Jesus' trial and Paul's, maybe the same men. And, and Jesus is innocent, being persecuted by men who care not about honoring God's word, uh, God's law, and Paul the same. An innocent sufferer being uh, condemned and accused by these, these men. Now, we know what these guys have been thinking about for the last two years, but what has Paul been thinking for the last two years when he's been sitting in prison? It's interesting, the text doesn't say anything. It doesn't have any clue about what Paul might have been thinking or what Paul might have been experiencing. What would you be thinking about if you were there in prison? Clearly innocent, the text is very clear, clearly innocent, left in prison just for political reasons. What would you be thinking about over those years? I wonder if some of the Psalms that Paul had memorized didn't come to his mind. Paul doubtless had the book of Psalms memorized. 
And I wonder if some of those words came to his mind about waiting. Look, look I, I wrote down, I, th- I think, for you a passage from Psalm 119. Look at what it says. I wonder if Paul prayed this when he was in prison. How long must your servant wait? When will you punish my persecutors? The arrogant dig tr- pits to trap me contrary to your law. All your commands are trustworthy. Help me, for I am being persecuted without cause. They almost wiped me from the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your unfailing love, preserve my life, that I may obey the statutes of your mouth. Why, it would make sense for Paul to say that, wouldn't it? Don't be confused. Don't be confused when Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 and he tells us to rejoice and not to be anxious. Paul didn't write that while he was sitting on a deck chair in front of the ocean. No one was bringing drinks in a coconut with a little umbrella on it for Paul while he's writing this letter about being anxious. Uh, Paul is, is, is not trying to deny either that, that you have reasons to be anxious. Paul is not living in a dream world where pain doesn't happen. Paul is telling people like you, people with a lot of reasons to be anxious, to turn from it. You have a lot of reasons to be anxious, don't you? And, and the, the prerequisite for not being anxious is not removing every stressor in your life. Some of you think, well, I won't be anxious. I'll worry less if, when this happens. That's not the formula that Paul is laying out for us in Philippians 4. Now let's continue reading here in Acts 25 again, verse 6. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Here come the accusations again against Paul. The charges aren't listed, but apparently they're not very convincing to Festus. We know that because look down at uh, Acts 25 verse 18. This is a few days later. This is uh, Festus' assessment of their accusations. Look at verse 18. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss to investigate how to investigate such matters. It wasn't very convincing, apparently. Now, we can guess at what some of the accusations were by looking at how Paul responded. Look at verse 8 here. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. This issue with Caesar, we've talked about this, probably has to do with the fact that they're trying to uh, condemn Paul for being seditious or being guilty of treason. That would certainly get the Roman governor's attention. I haven't done anything wrong against Caesar, Paul says. We talked about the temple. Remember, they arrested Paul when he was in the temple because uh, they thought that Paul had brought some Gentiles into the temple and desecrated the temple. That wasn't true either, and they couldn't prove that. Then there's this issue about the law. We haven't really talked about this that much as part of Paul's defense here, but in these trials, one of the things that Paul does is he consistently argues that what he believes and what he is preaching about Jesus 
is perfectly consistent with the Hebrew Scriptures. It matches exactly what Moses wrote and what David wrote. In fact, it aligns perfectly with the will of God who called the world into existence. This is not some new radical teaching that Paul made up. It conforms to the very fabric of the universe because it's the very word of the God who called the fabric of the universe into existence. Paul's message is the word of God, the word of God that called, that created the universe. And if what Paul is saying seems to be out of sync with the world, it's the world that's broken, not Paul's message. Think about this here. What we believe may be slandered. It may be called lunacy or uh, uh, hate-filled or weird or foolish. But it is the word of the one who created the universe. And it is the world that will con- come inform- into... It is the world that will come into conformity with the gospel, not the gospel that will come into conformity with the world. Now, remember with me for a minute here the trouble that Paul has had about the law. Do you remember this? Um, they, they, had told, they had been accusing Paul. Paul is teaching people not to obey the law. In fact, Paul is teaching Gentiles, and that really bothered them. How this Jewish teacher was inviting Gentiles to become the follower of the Messiah. The Messiah they didn't believe was the Messiah. How different this is, how different their attitude towards Gentiles is than the Old Testament's view of Gentiles. Do you remember? God blessed Abraham so that that Abraham himself would be a blessing to the whole world. When, When Jesus was brought into the temple as a little baby and Simeon, that old man, held him up, Simeon said, you will be a light for the Gentiles. Oh, this is God's plan. This is what God wanted to happen. He wanted the Gentiles to know about Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And yet the the Jews here are driven by this animosity towards those non-Jews, those dogs. You know, one of the clearest evidences that you're disconnected from the God of the Bible is your attitude toward people of different races and ethnicities and languages and cultures. We're naturally taught to label people based on their appearance. We categorize them, and every time you label them and and categorize them, we always come out on top, right? Um, You you categorize people by their ethnicity, and you evaluate them in terms of their intelligence or their skill or their trustworthiness or integrity. That's an expression of our sin nature. It's an expression of our disconnect from God. One of the ways that you can tell you're actually getting the message of the book of Acts is, is that when you recognize that people from all nations, regardless of their language or their color or their uh, uh, race or their immigration status or their political affiliation or their gender preferences, that all of them, all of them are called to follow Jesus Christ. Is that what you think about when you see people on the news? Is that what the, the, the thought that comes to your mind when you see them? This animosity that Paul's experiencing here is driven by racial pride. I'm not sure what happened to Festus. It's interesting. Did you notice back in in verse 5, he had said to them, well, let's have the trial in Caesarea. And he changes his mind in verse 9, and he wants Paul to go to Jerusalem. And Paul, he just knows he's not going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem at all. 
So he appeals to Caesar. Look at what happens here. Verse 9. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Verse 10. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. Festus, you should be letting me go. Hmm. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Now here's the new part of the story, the new element in this fourth trial, Paul's appeal to Caesar. From a legal standpoint, he's exercising his rights as a Roman citizen. Every Roman citizen had the right to be heard by Caesar. Uh, There's things about this appeal that we don't understand. The laws changed over time. We don't have great records. Actually, the book of Acts is one of the best historical documents speaking to this right of appeal to Caesar. Regardless, what it means, though, for Paul is a trip to Rome. And from a narrative standpoint in the book of Acts, it explains how Paul got there. He's on the move. How did he get to Rome? He got to Rome by appealing to justice from Caesar. What's actually even more important than that narrative element in the book of Acts is what it demonstrates, what it tells us about God. It tells us God is at work even though it might not seem so. Do you remember the promise? We talked about this a few weeks ago, the promise that Jesus had made to Paul. Look back at Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Look at what it says. Acts 23, just a page or two to the left. Acts 23, 11. Paul has a dream, a vision. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and he said to him, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. You must. You will. Oh, this promise, it's so important. Here are the means by which God is going to fulfill his promise. How is Paul going to get to Rome? (laughs) You would not have written this story this way. You would not have have guessed that this would happen, that God would move Paul to Rome by the relentless opposition of these Jewish leaders. Or that God would use a Roman governor who's making political and judicial calculations. Or by this law that the Roman government had. Paul's going to make it to Rome, and he's not going to have to pay a dime to get there. He's going to get there, and he's going to have the opportunity to talk to some of the most influential and important citizens in that entire city. God's at work. It must not have felt that way, though. Not when Paul was let out of prison again for another trial before another governor. Not when he was standing there and around him the Jews were accusing him of all these crimes. It probably didn't feel very much like God was at work. And not when he was faced with the prospect of having to go back to Jerusalem. It must not have felt like it, but he was. If gratitude is snuffed out by worry, if anxiety suffocates thanksgiving, what trumps anxiety? The fact that God is at work. Not only in this passage is that true, but but it's interesting that God's work, God being at work, is what motivates Paul to remain at his work. Paul keeps on in the mission that Christ gave him because because God is at work in Paul's life. The two of them go together. We're going to actually look at this a little bit more uh, next week. 
But here, even Paul's testifying to Felix. He's going to, next week we'll talk about this, press Herod hard to believe. This is Paul's mission. He's doing it because God is at work. God provides, so Paul works. This past week, a Samaritan's Purse host, uh, posted a story online, perhaps you saw it, about Operation Christmas Child Boxes. It's about a man by the name of uh, Yves. Eve. Well, it's French. It's pronounced Y V. It's spelled Y V E S, and I'm sure I think it's pronounced Eve or something like it. Well, Eve was a young man, and he was born in Rwanda. And because of the Rwandan uh, genocide, his family fled Rwanda and they moved to Togo in West Africa. And when uh, he got to this village, he was telling his story, they got there, and the village was surrounded by, almost oppressed by, witch doctors and witchcraft. When Eve was 11 years old, they brought Operation Christmas Child boxes to him. Inside was the gospel. And many people in that village became followers of Jesus Christ, and they started to push back against this witchcraft. Eve said he was surprised when he got his box because inside was a scarf. A scarf. If you live in Togo, West Africa, the scarf is about the last thing you possibly need. So Eve took the scarf and he wrapped it up. He packed it away and set it aside. He didn't really need it. Uh, Three years later, his family moved to Buffalo, New York. Eve uh, uh, finally got to use his scarf. Listen to what he wrote. I moved to Buffalo, New York, one of the coldest places in the country, and I had this scarf. I had ignored it all this time, but now I had it to keep me warm. This was God's way of showing me he knew my story. He knew everything I had been through in the past, and he even knew my future, which he had prepared me for. This is what this little scene is about, God being at work. With that in mind, I want to finish this morning by asking you two questions. Two questions I want to ask you this morning. The first one is this. Are you certain that God is work are at work? Are you certain that God is at work? How certain are you about this? It might not look like it, but, but God is at work. I've told you before about my admiration. Uh, it's been a while, but I, I think I've told you about my admiration for the writings of a man by the name of Joe Bailey. Joe Bailey and his wife buried three of their four sons. They had a very rare genetic disease, uh, and it, it took three of their four sons before they turned 25. And, and here's one of the poems. He calls them psalms, a psalm that, that Joe Bailey wrote. It's called A Psalm in a Hospital Corner. Listen to these words. Lord, my heart fears. I know that you have said fear not, but my heart fears. Thoughts flash across the track of my mind. Thoughts of evil, not good. Loss, not gain. Suffering, not joy. My thoughts are out of control. They exhume the past, bury the future, make the present a heavy, heavy burden. Lord, I cannot control these thoughts. I cannot look at the future with peace. But I trust you. These thoughts, These fears run wild, careering thoughts of evil may make it seem like I don't, but I do. I trust you, Lord. I know your thoughts toward me are of good, not evil. I fear evil, not you. Yet fearing wild, I know that even evil from your hand is purest good. 
I fear, I trust, I trust you, Lord. I trust your wisdom, life-spanning, your love, death-taming. I trust you to know the end of this long beginning moment. This chapter is, is one more piece of evidence that God works out his will. Remember uh, Brandon O'Brien who, who came across his worry uh, 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 honestly, couldn't sleep, and he got sick? Well, uh, this is what helped him. Listen to what he said. I'd like to think my tendency to worry is evidence of my unwavering sense of responsibility. I read that a minute ago. Truth is, worry reveals a deep-seated self-reliance. I might say with Oliver Cromwell, put your trust in God but mind to keep your powder dry. But when I remember God's faithfulness in the past and remember that he alone has brought me through, I am able to replace worry with worship. This simple action ensures that my faith is not in my keeping the powder dry, but in God's promise to secure the victory. If you own a Kindle reader from Amazon, I don't know if you knew this, but if you own one of those, you can highlight passages from books. Uh, Amazon keeps a record of all of the passages that have been uh, uh, highlighted from all of the Kindle books that are available. And there's a passage that's been highlighted twice as many times as any other passage in any other book. It's a line from the Hunger Games, from the second uh, volume of the Hunger Games. Here's what the line is. Because sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. That's the line. Most, most highlighted line. Sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. It's sad to think that this is the line that attracts all these young adult readers of those volumes. What's sad about it, I suppose, is not that it's untrue. I just wonder about whether or not they know the God who is very well equipped to deal with the things that happen to us. For those of us who are Christians, we set the cross ahead of us, don't we? As, and when we think about God being at work, isn't this the greatest example of God being at work, even though it didn't seem like he was? The cross itself seems like a terrible loss. Jesus went to it willingly. He prayed, though, God, if there's some other way, let that happen. But it had been a part of God's plan from the beginning, it was the only way that God could at the same time uphold his righteousness, uphold his justice in punishing sin, and provide a way out for sinners to be forgiven and given life. There had to be a perfect, infinite sacrifice, and Jesus was that sacrifice. But it looked like chaos, didn't it? Ruin, defeat. Jesus Christ, outsmarted by the Jewish leaders, overpowered by the Roman government, rejected by the Judean people. God was at work, rescuing, redeeming sinners. Jesus died, he rose again, he makes it possible for all to turn to him by faith, to have life and forgiveness. You're a faithful friend, you're a good husband, you're a good wife, if you remind people that even when it doesn't seem like it's so, God is at work. Are you going to remind somebody of that this week? Now here's the second question. Are you continuing in the work of God? Are you continuing in the work of God? The work that he gave you to do. Are you doing what he asked you to do? What you can do? There are reasons for you to quit. There's lots of reasons to quit. There's lots of reasons to be anxious. Do they make you withdraw? Do they make you stop? 
Chuck Swindoll uh, wrote about uh, something very odd he saw in his neighborhood when he was growing up. There was a woman across the street. Her name was Thelma. And Thelma got married late in life. She and her husband had a very happy marriage. And Thelma's life revolved around her husband. And the day that he died, suddenly, at a relatively young age, was a devastating day for her. In fact, she spent the next uh, several months going to the cemetery every day. Every day she went to the cemetery for hours to try to connect with her husband. Well, one day, uh, Chuck Swindoll's mother said to her children, she said, pray for me, I'm going to go talk to Thelma about Christ. And she sat down with Thelma, shared the gospel with her, and Thelma turned and, and believed and became a follower of Jesus. In the course of their conversation that took place over the next few weeks, as Thelma's starting to understand the gospel more in the Bible, uh, Swindoll's mother said to her, you know, Thelma, you don't really need to go to the cemetery every day to, to grieve like that, to try to connect with your husband. And she said, oh, I know, I know, but I just feel like I have to go. And Thelma said to her, well, have you ever thought about what you might do when you're at the cemetery and how you might use what you know about Jesus to serve other people that are there? <laughs> Chuck Swindoll said, uh, she was probably the only cemetery evangelist in the country. And she led there a number of people to Christ among the tombstones. Hmm. Cemetery evangelist is not on anyone's preferred list of vocations. There's nobody in this room who thinks that would be a great deal. Paul was a prison evangelist. It's not on the list of things he wanted to do. You don't want to be the hospital evangelist, the therapy evangelist, the... Uh, child protection and welfare court system evangelist. It's, it's this vision, though, in part, uh, of God being at work, even when you find yourself in those places. It's this vision of this that will remove the blinders from you so you can really see God's at work. And seeing that, you will become increasingly thankful, which is a good goal for this week, isn't it? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for this good word that you have given us. And we thank you for the Apostle Paul and we thank you for the lessons that you taught him so that he could write to us. Oh, rejoice, rejoice. Do not be anxious. Lord, we confess to you, oh, this is a besetting sin. It's a sin that easily that weighs us down in which we get entangled. And it, it, it makes us ungrateful people. Lord, I pray this week that you would remind us of your great sovereignty and so reminding us that you would turn our worry into worship. Do that for us according to your great kindness. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.